You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, building a more informed community with independent news and storytelling. I'm Jerry Kenny. It's 10 o'clock Sunday morning and time for YSO Weekend. Coming up on today's program, we'll hear from a lifelong member of the West Dayton YWCA and hear about her vision of reopening the center as a resource for women and girls in West Dayton. Also in the program, we focus on COVID-19 and the mental health impact it's having on our community. Up first, a recap of some of the week's news. The outbreak of COVID-19 among inmates at the Montgomery County Jail has grown since the first case was reported in early June. According to the jail, the facility currently has 17 inmates who are positive for COVID-19. Five staff members are also quarantining at home. Public Health has asked the jail to test everyone in the facility, but it's not doing that. Instead, the jail is following the recommendation of its medical provider, NAVCARE. WISO's Lila Goldstein reports. Jail Division Major Jeremy Roy says that because of the turnover at the jail, booking some people in and releasing other people out, mass testing doesn't help. He says the jail reached out to other groups, including the Ohio Department of Health, who have said the same thing. But Ellis Jacobs, an attorney with Advocates for Basic Legal Equality, says the growing outbreak shows that what you're doing isn't working. So maybe it's time to start taking the advice of the local experts who truly have our community's interest at heart and do the testing that they've been demanding. A public health spokesperson said they're in discussions with the jail to determine next steps. For WYSO News, I'm Lila Goldstein. Professors, unions at Wright State and Miami Universities are warning of problems to come when students return to campus this fall. WISO's Jason Reynolds reports. More than a dozen chapters of the American Association of University Professors have signed an open letter to college administrators. It warns of a potential super-spreader event as campuses reopen. Dr. Kathy Wagner is the president of the AAUP chapter at Miami University. What is being set up is a very, very dangerous situation. She says universities are some of the biggest employers in Ohio, and an outbreak on campus is unlikely to stay on campus. Professors are saying they should be able to deliver courses online if they think that's the right thing to do to help slow the spread of coronavirus. Wagner says she sympathizes with college administrators who are struggling to deal with student safety and enrollment issues, and at a time when Governor DeWine has cut $110 million in higher education funding. She thinks politicians should be saving universities, not defunding them. There should be bailout money not only for just to keep the places open, but to help with the testing and everything that's required to keep people safe. Wagner says universities aren't just big employers. They're also places where researchers are working to solve some of society's biggest problems, like the pandemic. For WISO News, I'm Jason Reynolds. When state officials allowed gyms and fitness facilities to reopen on May 26th, they issued several requirements on sanitization and social distancing. Ben Heal, owner of Frequency Fitness in Kettering, says those in his industry have always operated under those guidelines. We keep things clean and we can provide you with a a safe environment to work out in. 
Heal says he started off hopeful as clients returned after reopening, but now that the number of COVID cases is increasing, his clients are canceling their appointments again. A lot of folks haven't returned because they are either furloughed, laid off, have lost their position entirely, or some of my elderly clients or compromised clients just don't want to come back out and deal with being around other people because they're extremely afraid that they're going to obtain this virus. The owner, trainer, says he's angry that businesses like his were forced to close while big box stores and liquor stores were allowed to stay open, and he says his industry has suffered as a result. He's urging people who are venturing back out to support local business. Due to heavy rains in late April, it's been a late planting year for farmers in Ohio. WISO environmental reporter Chris Welter has this story. Jason Ward farms over 500 acres of organic crops in the Miami Valley. He had to plant late this year because of rain in April and early May. He says the ground was too moist, and if he planted his seeds, then they would have rotted in the ground. But, he says, he finished planting his fields about 10 days ago, and now? It could all use a good rain. Seems like we get a ton of rain when we're trying to plant, and then we get everything planted, and then we get no rain. There's an old saying among farmers in the Midwest that corn should be knee-high by the 4th of July. Ward says that isn't completely accurate. Good growth depends on conditions each year. In fact, he says, with all the fertilizers modern farmers use, if your corn is knee-high by the 4th of July, you're probably behind. Nowadays, it should be at least chest-high by the 4th of July. For WYSO News and Report for America, I'm Chris Welter. And I'm Jerry Kenny. This is WISO Weekend. The National Park Service has awarded a Dayton nonprofit $500,000 to renovate the site of the country's first African American YWCA. The branch originally formed in 1889. It moved into a West Dayton house on Paul Lawrence Dunbar Street in the early 1940s and closed in the 1970s. But one childhood member has had a lifelong vision of reopening the center as a resource for women and girls in West Dayton. WISO's Lila Goldstein spoke with Elizabeth Early Gaines, president of the nonprofit Early Visions, outside the house last week. My name is Elizabeth Early Gaines. I am the keeper of the history of the Westside YWCA. This building is fabulous, fabulous. Number one is the first black YWCA in the United States. And you're standing here at the steps of the mother of integration. This property and the YWCA Central and the black YWCA integrated in the 1950s during the time that women did not have credit, women surnames were their husband's name and these black educated women pulled together their funds and bought this Kuntz mansion back in 1941. When I was a little girl I would sit up on uh, the old Dunbar and the McFarland school ground and watch the ladies come in this building with their pillbox purses and hats and gloves, carrying their beautiful dishes with cakes, and, and I wanted to be those women. 
I used to sneak over here and peep in. And, and when that door opened up one day, I had the opportunity to go in. And a young lady was having discussion with another young lady, and I don't know what it was about. And what she told her was, you are enough. And she peeped around the corner, and she said, and you're enough too. And from that day, I became a lifetime member of the Westside YWCA. They did field trips. You can do art. I learned just about everything that I am today was from the women of the yesterday. Uh, my grandmother was the music teacher here, Miss Rachel Early Powell. And when she would come and do music, I would sit and I would look and say, wow, these are women of my community, not the people on TV, not the people that you will never see. These are people that are in my community, making my community strong. Like I said, this is where we're standing right now is the mother of integration. What's a beautiful thing in some ways? It's a double-edged sword. Um, when we integrated, the girls were no longer using the dormitories here. The girls were going downtown or going to other organizations. So when we integrated, it closed and it left a hole in our community. So I'm here to fill that hole again. We're here to fill that hole. So for the last 22 years, I've been supporting this property and trying to keep this property for my community. And, and it's been very, very difficult. I've had a lot of break-ins. It has gone through a lot. And it's been very difficult financially. When I found out I got that grant, I exhaled. I've been holding my breath for so long. Getting a civil rights grant in West Dayton in 2020, the year of women, it's a blessing. This building here will be a refuge for where you can come in and be who you are. I, I want to do a, a, a music studio. Uh, I want to teach economics. It's so important. Self-pride, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-worth. I walked in this building as a little girl, and I came out as a woman, a woman with pride and of, of their community and the color of my skin. I was proud to be a strong black woman, and I got that here. And that's what I want the other girls in my community to do. That was Elizabeth Early Gaines speaking to WISO's Lila Goldstein. You can hear more about the history of the West Side Y and plans for the Early Visions Purpose Center at earlyvisions.org. Well, more than 700 people in Indiana prisons have tested positive for COVID-19. Facilities have taken hard measures to curb it. Prisoner movement is often restricted. Many programs have been suspended. But advocates say measures taken at the Indiana women's prison have been especially harsh. Side Effects Public Media's Jake Harper reports. Kelsey Kaufman used to run an education program in the Indianapolis prison. And right now, she says inmates there are desperate. 
a terrible situation. It needs to end immediately. Kaufman is mainly concerned about these units known as the cottages. They house dozens of women. Each cell has a door, not bars. And advocates say the inmates are locked in the cells for 18 hours a day. There are no toilets. There are no sinks. There's no source of water. And the only opening that they have at all is a 3-inch by 8-inch small, very small window. This lockdown started in April, and Kaufman and the prisoners aren't the only ones worried about it. I spoke to an employee, too, who asked to remain anonymous because they didn't want to lose their job. The employee, Kaufman, and inmates all said keeping prisoners penned in these cells has consequences. For instance, one correctional officer is responsible for dozens of inmates, and they have to unlock each door manually. That means long wait times for bathroom breaks. Former inmate Nicole Hayes is still in touch with friends inside. If they want to let you out to go to the bathroom, they will. If they don't feel like it because they're doing whatever they're doing and they don't want to, you're not going. Some inmates say they've had to pee in cups or in trash cans. Because of that, many avoid drinking water. They're dehydrated, and some have even stopped taking important medications because they can cause your body to make more urine. The summer heat makes matters worse. There's no AC in most of the cottages. Deb Trice is another former inmate. She says the cells get a lot hotter than outside. When you close those doors, there's no ventilation in there. And those little windows? They barely open to begin with, if they open at all. The temperatures could cause problems like heat stroke or worse. In 2006, two inmates died from heat-related issues at another Indiana prison. And the other major concern is fire safety. The prison employee I spoke with said there's no way an officer could unlock all the doors if there were a fire or other emergency. Chris Bussey, another former inmate, said the same thing. Because at some point, the officer is going to stop trying to unlock the doors and worry about their own safety. Kaufman has asked Governor Eric Holcomb to intervene and for the women's prison to unlock the doors. The Department of Correction declined her request. I asked department officials for an interview, and they said no. A spokesperson wrote... The Indiana Women's Prison is a maximum security prison, and reasonable precautions are taken to ensure not only the security, but the health and welfare of the women. The spokesperson also said the prison passed a fire inspection on Wednesday. An inmate said the prison opened all the cell doors during the inspection. Kaufman says she's worried about COVID-19, but treating the women this way is not necessary to curb the spread of the virus. It is unacceptable. And actually, it's torture. And they're using the pandemic as an excuse to do this to them. State Senator J.D. Ford represents the district where the prison sits. He also got in touch with the governor and the Department of Correction and got a similar response. The doors would stay locked. He says prisoners are human beings. We should do a better job caring for them. Jay Carper, SideFX Public Media. This is Why So Weekend on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming up in the program, we'll hear from one mental health counselor how COVID-19 is impacting our local community. Well, it's July, and for the last month or so, businesses have been opening back up after weeks or even months of being closed. Many people are getting back to work, and for some, it feels like this is the beginning of getting back to normal. 
but others believe that home and work life have been permanently altered because of COVID-19. This week, we're speaking about all this with Francis Duncan, who has spent more than 25 years as a clinical psychotherapist. I'd like to start by talking about how unusual this pandemic has been. What are the types of trauma that people may be facing right now? Well, as you said, it's something we've never faced before. And uh, nothing increases anxiety more than uh, uncertainty. And we have all been affected individually and collectively in, in terms of even just being able to meet basic needs. So there's a lot of fear, uh, not just fear for our lives and the lives of our loved ones, but what's going to happen with our with the jobs. And some people are getting called back to work now, but they don't have childcare because the uh, daycares are just uh, taking maybe nine kids in a group instead of 20 plus. Um, So that's been a dilemma. People concerned that they might potentially lose their jobs simply because they don't have anybody to watch their kids. Just the realities of that. Um, people who may not have jobs to go back to, small businesses that may not reopen, um, you know, trying to navigate systems that are uh, broken. And I think maybe one of the positives of this is highlighting what those broken systems are and maybe some of that potentially changing. But in terms of trauma, um, you know, I work, I'm a, I specialize in post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and this is affecting all of us. I think this is, uh, you know, in terms of PTSD, we're all feeling some of that, you know, depression, anxiety, fearfulness, um, the uncertainty of what's going to happen next, not knowing if we're going to be in that group of people who are jobless, homeless, no income. It's a time of stress and fearfulness and uh, high anxiety, of course. In your work since the pandemic started, how are people dealing with this crisis? Are people doing things differently than they have in the past and in a different way? I think that uh, most people, um, and, and I'm thinking of you know my clients that I'm working with now and their families, are taking it very seriously uh, with the social distancing, the stay-at-home orders, that they followed those orders uh, the best that they could. I, I, one thing, too, though, is that your defense systems kick in, uh, psychological defense systems, and denial is one of those. So I think there's also some people who want to believe that it's it's okay to uh, be out and about and not maybe be as cautious as some other person might think is important. And we're each different and process it in different ways. And so then there's this kind of conflict that goes on among our, people in our society of ones who think masks are a good idea and ones who are like, no. And so people are handling the pandemic's effects to varying degrees. What if I feel upset if I'm feeling sadness, frustration, or even anger? Are these normal feelings? Certainly. So uh, I think we're all uh, angry for different reasons. I think adults trying to deal with the unemployment system and um, just trying to get services that they qualify for, but are you know the systems are broken and they're not getting many I, I'm working with still have not gotten the first dollar from unemployment and they don't know what they're going to do. So um, I think that coping is. It's happening uh, it, it, in terms of people are doing the best that they can. And for some people have some uh, 
others for support and some people totally are isolated with you know I I can think of a, a mother that has little kids and she has no family support and she's uh, off work and so she's taking very good care of her kids but she's not taking such good care of herself and I think that that's really important as being the the caregivers that we remember that we have to be good to ourselves and, and practice self-care the best we can right now as well. Francis, children may not understand everything that's happening around them, but they can be pretty perceptive. I know you have been working with some younger children through all of this. What kinds of emotions or feelings are they experiencing right now? I think that there's um, a lot of fear, particularly with the younger kids, maybe, you know, six, seven-year-old children I'm thinking of right now who are having nightmares and uh, when I ask them what their nightmares are about, it's about the corona, as it seems to be called by children. Uh, multiple kids have used that term. And uh, the corona coming and killing them, killing their families. And sometimes they are expressing concern, particularly for their grandparents, because they've heard that in the discussions uh, in, with their family or in the news that older people may have a more difficult experience or outcome with coronavirus. So they're not able to, uh, in some families, they're doing the social distancing even with grandparents. They miss their grandparents. They miss their friends at school. They miss their teacher. Kids being schooled at home, which um, for some that works well. For others, it was not good at all. I can think of many kids who their stress levels went up greatly because they needed that one-on-one or a hands-on kind of school experience that online just didn't give them and some of them got way behind in their work and worried they were not going to be able to um, you know pass to the next grade and even the kids that before this um, uh, stay-at-home order happened um, where they couldn't go to school kids who said they didn't like school so much really missed the social interaction and missed their friends and so it's been very difficult for kids And how should parents talk to their kids about the pandemic? Are there ways to help them cope with this particular monster in the closet? Well, I think anytime you're talking with a child about something that's scary or something that's happening um, that's traumatic, that it's important to be honest. But of course, use kid language and whatever the developmental age is of the child that you're expressing in in a way that is going to be uh, calming and soothing and that they're going to understand it and you're being honest but not uh, increasing their fear. You know, parents are doing their best job right now of trying to ease those fears and let them know that they're going to be safe and they're taking the measures to keep them safe. You have talked about keeping as much structure in place for children as possible during difficult times, but that's been especially difficult right now. The news is changing very fast. In-school learning has been suspended for months. Kids haven't been able to see their teachers and their friends. What are some of the most important ways to keep kids on track when the normal day-to-day isn't there anymore? Well, again, it's about structure. I know that even during the summer now uh, that school is out, um, there are parents who are still having their children do some schoolwork during the day and to put some of that structure in place and for them to continue to learn. I know that continuing their normal routine is important and I'm thinking of a family that does family game nights Uh, every week they did before the pandemic they continue to 
try they do that every week now trying to give their kids enrichment experiences but also having to be at home all the time it's been a stressor for families and kids to be together so much I mean I've had kids say I can't stand this I have to get away from my parents and then parents saying oh my god (laughs) I love them so much but (laughs) so it's been tough it's been very tough and I, I think that um, you know, as I always ask kids if they had any contact with their friends, and some of them do, you know, have uh, ways of social media, texting or video chats or whatever it might be to be able to stay in touch with their friends. It's not the same, but providing them with uh, those social needs and enrichment needs the best that you can because kids, it's, it's a part of their developmental growing and learning is that social contact. This week, we're looking at how the COVID-19 pandemic is influencing the mental health of our community. Frances Duncan has spent more than 25 years as a clinical psychotherapist. We'll wrap up our conversation with a look at how the pandemic is changing the lives of our elders who are at especially high risk from the disease. And we'll look at the ways in which all our lives may be changed going forward. Frances, what are some of the particularly difficult things older people may be going through right now? Well... I know that um, people who have uh, health challenges are at greater risk, and it's, I think, maybe a little more frightening for people who are older or people who maybe are not older but have health challenges. And um, the isolation, you know, can be harder, I think, if if your uh, life centers around your grandchildren or your kids and family, and, and you can't do the typical things, the traditions, the birthdays, the holiday celebrations, um, just anything that's our normal, traditional family kind of gatherings have been affected, which then further isolates people who are uh, older and maybe can't get out as much anyway because of maybe some health challenges. But um, I think that if someone is in a nursing facility, and that's been particularly challenging for families and for the people who are uh, needing that level of health care because the isolation is just, it has to be pretty unbearable. And knowing that you can't go visit your loved one when you know that they really need you and they're sick and need you even more now. So I think that in, in a sense, it's going to draw families together more in the long run we're going to appreciate each other a lot more uh, and realize how valuable those our relationships are. We can get caught up in everyday life when things were, quote, the old normal and uh, maybe take a lot of things for granted that we won't be taking for granted probably in the future. It can be very hard for people who care for their elders to deal with daily stresses in the best of times. If I'm an older caregiver, how can I keep calm, focused, and positive through all of this? Anytime you're a caregiver for those you love, um, it is a, a big challenge, and you need a lot of support. Um, and again, the self-care is extremely important. And self-care doesn't mean selfish. I think sometimes people mix those two up. There's a difference between selfish and self-care. And if you're going to be strong to and healthy to help those you love and who depend on you, then it's super important to take good care of yourself. And I don't just mean physically, I think emotionally and physically. Um, But as far as 
the importance of it and how do you do it. I, I think you do what you've been doing and with the limitations that you have now. Those who are caregivers uh, are going to do everything they can to make sure the person they love is well and safe and as happy as they can be and connected. And that's what we, we have to get a little innovative and creative in how we can meet those same goals and needs now with the limitations that we have. And I feel like I'm going to put you on the spot with this next question, but what's next for all of us? Are our feelings going to change as we continue through this crisis? Where do we end up as a community on the other side? Well, I'm an optimist, so I want to believe that this is highlighting all the uh, broken systems and things that uh, we need to have change with and, and that those changes are going to be happening. And I think that as humans, we're uh, aware of how we are all connected and what we can do for each other. We have not only the pandemic uh, crisis taking place in this country, but tensions are high due to a number of social and political factors today. This kind of raises the bar on the tension level for the American community as a whole and really the world community. How do people, how much can people take? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> and I, uh, I think that um, while we are so challenged right now on every front, that um, there's a lot of positive change happening too. I think the outpouring that you're seeing now, yes, it adds stress, it adds tension, but I think it also is energizing and it, and it uh, gives a lot of people hope that things are going to truly, truly change. We've been speaking with Francis Duncan, a clinical psychotherapist about the COVID-19 pandemic and the mental health implications it holds for our community. Francis, thank you so much. Thank you. Find the rest of our discussion and our community COVID-19 resource guide online at WISO.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. And that brings to a close this week's program. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday morning at 10. Coming up now on WYSO, it's Vic McCunis with The Book Nook.